Before we begin, a reminder that nothing on this podcast is intended as a statement of faith, doctrine, or fellowship, and this podcast is not affiliated with any church, school, or calling body. Welcome to the Gird Up Podcast. My name is Charlie Ungemach, and we're glad that you're here. I'll be joined in just a moment by this week's guest, but before that, I want to say thank you to all those who help support the Gird Up Project. All of our content here at Gird Up is available free to anyone anywhere in the world who might benefit from our message, and we want to keep it that way. But we rely upon the contributions of our listeners in order to do so. You will never see any paywalls or exclusive content here at Gird Up. That being said, it does cost money to put a show like this together, so if you find what we're doing here valuable and you're willing and able to do so, please go to www.girdupministries.com, click on the menu, and select Buy Us a Cup of Coffee. That $5 donation goes a long way towards keeping this podcast going, and it helps us reach other men just like you. God's blessings, fellas. Enjoy the show. All right, folks, you're listening to the Gird Up Podcast. My name is Charlie Ungemach. I'm joined tonight for another Advent podcast by... Isaiah Duff. And... Jacob Klug. Good. So Jacob and Isaiah were on last week to talk about um, Advent number one, or Sunday, or yeah, the first week of Advent. Um, we went through a reading from Isaiah, talked about uh, the Tetragrammaton, or the name for one of the names for God, and we drank... Um, how do you say it? Glühwein. Glühwein, which we very much enjoyed. So we're going to do that again this week. This week we're drinking, oh boy, Coquito is what it's called. So Coquito is a traditional Puerto Rican drink, which is similar to eggnog. Um, it, it it probably, like most likely, comes from the same tradition as eggnog, like European eggnog. And so when the Spanish came then to Puerto Rico, they wanted to make eggnog like they'd been drinking in Europe, but they didn't have all the same ingredients, so they used coconut milk and uh Local spices and rum and things like that. So it is sweet. It is. It is very, very sweet. Very rich. I really like it. I do too. But Jacob, you said you might not even finish yours, huh? Yeah, if I take a small sip, it's fine. But I can't, like, take a gulp. It's, it is it's rich. Too, too sweet for that. I've never loved super rich things. Yeah. the uh, One of the websites I was looking at suggested icing it down, and I thought, oh, no, we don't need to do that. <laughs> that might help, That'd actually. That'd be good. <laughs> Yeah, but we put a little uh, we put a little cinnamon on top, and it's delicious. Uh, now, coquito is generally served between Thanksgiving and Dia de los Reyes, so Epiphany, the Day of the Kings. And recipes can include star anise, pistachio milk, oat milk, coffee, Nutella, uh, masala chai, cream cheese, banana, and strawberries, in addition to the normal ingredients. Reportedly. Jimmy Fallon is a big fan. He's mentioned it on his show a couple of different times. And the Latin American museum called El Museo de del, Barrio, del Barrio in New York City hosts an annual Coquito tasting contest called Coquito Masters on Three Kings Day each January. So on January 6th. That's kind of cool. The competition was first established in 2002 and continues each year. So we've established that it's really sweet. What, what do you guys think of it? I like the idea of this being a tasting contest, meaning they're they're testing how good someone is at tasting the drink, not how good the drink is. 
Well, I think it's like a wine tasting. I, right? I, yeah. I know. I'm just oh, you're being being, being difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I like. It's fun to think about. It's fun to think about all the different varieties, but at the same time, at what point does it stop being coquito and just start being some other kind of creamy liqueur? Right. When does it become its own thing that yeah. you've? It's it's sort of almost a uh, ship of Theseus problem. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> ship of Theseus. The ship of Theseus is a philosophical problem in which if you were to take the ship owned by the mythological character Theseus and replace it one plank at a time, and let's say 200 years later, replacing one plank per year, which is the actual ship of Theseus? Is it the ship which is still being used by his crew, or is it the ship made out of the original parts of the ship? Oh, so it's an argument from forms. Yeah. Right, like if you re- rebuilt a house, is it the same house? Because it's in the same spot, used by the same people? Fascinating. Well, are you the same person you were seven years ago? Because... Yeah, not by this argument, all right? Of your, yeah, all of your, your souls will regenerate. Every seven years or something like that. Interesting. Yeah. But we got a soul, so that yeah. changes things. Yeah. But you're not the same body. You can make the argument you're not the same body. Right. Sure. You're somebody else, body. but you're the same person. I think that... This what's the drink called again? Co- Coquito. Coquito. It it's not so far removed from like rum chata. Yeah. I think you could kind of like adjust it to rum chata where you, you couldn't could, you couldn't yeah. tell anymore that it's not just rum chata. Yeah. For my part, I, I would love to unwind after senior thesis is done with a glass of this. That All just right. sounds that just sounds good. I I, I send in my thesis. I put my feet up. I sip one of these. That sounds pretty good right about now. So we got to make sure we got another bottle of this around February, huh? <laughs> we got to be prepared. Yes. Awesome. Cool. Um, this week, before we get started, we got to make sure we shout out a young man named Ben Kelm. Now, Ben Kelm did not make a monetary donation. He actually donated a microphone. Oh. So he just literally just sent us a microphone. So thank you, Ben. Uh, most of the time, though, we uh, get donations through what we call a cup of coffee donation. We call it a cup of coffee donation because for the price of a cup of coffee, you can help support the ministry we're doing here with young men. If you'd like to support or help fund the work we do here at Gird Up, go to www.girdup.com, select buy us a cup of coffee in the main menu, and make your donation there. Thank you, Ben. All right. As we kind of talked about it last week, but uh, Isaiah, you want to start us again by just giving us a little explanation of what the uh, antiphons are? Certainly. And we'll get into it, yeah. Shortly, an antiphon is a song that is sung back and forth, historically in chant. Uh, The O antiphons are used in the seven days leading up to Christmas for vespers, or that is an evening service in the church. Uh, They were particularly used in the monasteries, and they are called the O Antiphons because they call on different names for Jesus. So we think of our hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That's one of them. Last time we talked O Adonai, and today, O Key of David. Awesome. Shall we start then? You want to read it in Latin, and I will read it in English. Certainly. So the Latin reads, O Clavis David et Sceptrum Domus Israel. Qui aperis et nemo claudit, claudis, et nemo aperit, veni et educh vinctum de domo carceris sedentem in tenebris et umbra mortis. Okay, okay. 
You can do it. <laughs> I can do it. O key of David and scepter of the house of Israel, you open and no one can shut. You shut and no one can open. Come and lead the prisoners from the prison house, those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. Or the, let's see if I can remember it off the top of my head, the hymn stanza in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is, O come, O key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the path that leads on high and close, make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. I like it. I like it. It is cool. I didn't, I never knew that, uh, Okomo Komi Manual was based on something yeah. else. So that's kind of cool to, kind of cool to think about. All right. What is meant, first of all, when, like, obviously, Key of David is the, is the name for the week. What are we talking about when we refer to the Key of David? So there are two places, uh, that this name shows up in scripture. So we can start with one and then go to the other. So the, the two places, if uh, you're listening and you want to follow along, are in Isaiah 22, and then we'll go over to Revelation 3. So to start with, uh, Isaiah 22, starting at verse 20. In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. To give some context uh, to that passage, uh, in this chapter... Isaiah is addressing two servants uh, who serve the uh, royalty in Judah, and those are Eliakim, and I have to find the other guy's name, uh, Shebna. They appear another place in Isaiah when the Assyrians come and lay siege to Jerusalem, uh, that these are the guys who go out and the... Uh, sometimes it's transliterated, sometimes it's translated Rapshika, or the field commander comes to the walls of Jerusalem, and he basically calls out, you've lost, your God can't do it, give up, or your king is going to let you starve. And Eliakim and, and Shebna go, and, and they say, hey, uh, could you stop saying that in Hebrew? We don't want our people to understand what you're saying. And then he's, And then he says... No, I'm going to shout even louder. And and that's actually the turning point in the story where God says, because of what Rapshika said that I can't save, they're all going to die, all 300,000 of them. Uh, and then, then the city is saved, and it's, it's one of these amazing miracles in the Old Testament. Uh, then to turn over to Revelation 3, this is from the beginning of the book, the seven uh, letters to the seven churches. I can get there in my Bible. Uh, this is the letter to Philadelphia. So I'll just read the whole letter and you can keep your, I guess, ears open for Key of David. So these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word 
and have not denied my name. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes I will make a pillar in the house of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. I think I missed the key of David. It was right at the beginning. It was right at the beginning. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So you're thinking like keys of the kingdom of heaven, like authority um, thoughts right there. And mentally jumping back to the Isaiah passage, uh, that chapter is about how Shebna was a faithless steward in the house of David. And therefore God is saying, you're going to die and you're going to lose your job. You valued wealth more than faithfulness, and this is the price. But Eliakim, you have been faithful, and therefore I will put a key on your shoulder, which no one can take from you, and whatever you close, no one can open, and whatever you open, no one can close. And the in that case, it, it seems to be a reference to something like maybe managing the treasury of Israel, uh, but the the broader idea being having power over the house of Israel, almost kind of making us think of someone like Joseph, not royalty per se, but with that kind of authority. Uh, for this reason, many Christians uh, throughout the centuries have considered Eliakim to be a type of Christ, that he, in a literal way, holds a key. Christ holds a, a key that is, that is greater, the, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, uh, while, while we're on this name, uh, if, if God in his wisdom should decide that I would be called to like a new mission start or a mission restart, at the top of my list of names for a church would be Key of David. I just love the ring of Key of David Lutheran Church. Hmm. I dig that. I dig that. Um, so when we're thinking about the key, right, uh, are we thinking a key that opens the gates of heaven? Are we thinking a key that unlocks the prison doors, if you will, um, like the bondage of sin, or is it both? I, I think that you can abstract it and make it both, right? So um, the key that frees us from sin, death, and the devil is also the key that opens the gate of heaven. Right, and in the Catechism, we have that section, Keys and Confession, which is really about pronouncing absolution to someone or announcing to someone that because of their sins, they, they do not have forgiveness. They have cut themselves off from Christ, which would, of course, link to the discussion of the keys in the New Testament, uh, which, since I mentioned that, for this reason, uh, 
Catholics love to see typology everywhere when they can't actually make a biblical argument. So sometimes they will say Eliakim is a type not of Christ, but of either Peter or the Catholic Church, because Peter has the keys to the kingdom, or or the Catholic Church has the keys to the kingdom. Uh, whereas we would say, well, yes, he, he gave the keys to Peter on, on that occasion in Matthew, but he also gives the keys to all the apostles and, and to the whole church. And, and so the, the key here, I, I think... I'm not so sure I could, you know, nail it down. It's it's metaphorical language, which means it's very broad in what it's trying to encompass. And, and the idea then of this being in the hand of Christ is that Christ is the one in charge over heaven and hell, over life and death. And so if, as to the church in Philadelphia... He has opened the way to heaven, and that's also reflected in what we read from the Antiphon and, and what I quoted from the hymn stanza. If Jesus opens the way to heaven, no one can close it to you, which is just a, a, a beautiful thing, that this is the assurance of forgiveness, though, that what Jesus has done for us is the key that opens paradise, and it's Jesus' key. <laughs> so so no one, no one has the right to say, well, it's actually closed. Good luck prying that key from Jesus, my friend. Think of it this way. How do you get to God? Well, the best we've got is you go to the holy place, the most holy place. Well, you can't get there, because if you get there, then you die. However, that is where Jesus can go. And so he tears the curtain open, and now we have access to God. And he's the one who's at the door, if you will. And you're not getting in unless you're covered, not by the ram's blood, like in the Old Testament, but covered by his blood. And so, kind of like how he says he's the narrow gate, like he's the, he, he's the gate that both locks and, and unlocks. When, when thinking about like how the church has the keys in a broad sense, we just think about, like, well, we've got the message that tells everyone, hey, with Jesus... The door to heaven is unlocked. We can get to God again, or for the first time. It makes me think of an Alistair Begg sermon I heard, and it's. It seems I just googled it real quick, the phrase, and uh, it's all over the place. So it's probably a famous one, um, but he retells the story of the thief on the cross. Oh, right, excellent and sermon. What and what the uh, what his experience would be like walking into heaven, right? And it's this idea that he's climbing the steps towards the gates of heaven. And he's like peeking in through the gates and kind of looking around. And these gates are just standing open wide. And he gets up to the gate. Long story short, right? He gets up to the, up to the gate and somebody stops him and says, what are you doing here? Like, you're not, you're not on the list. Like, what are you doing here? And his response is, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I was like, well, how did you get here? He goes, the man on the middle cross said I could come, right? That's the one who holds the keys. Yeah. That's almost the one making that he, me tear up a little. That's yeah. very beautiful. That He's the one that holds the keys. And so he says, you can come, you can come. The sermon clip is so beautiful. I'd recommend it. Anybody at home Absolutely. would find the time, the two or three minutes worthwhile. Just search The Man in the Middle Cross, Alistair Begg. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful sermon. Yeah. I He's one of the, he's one of the, uh, his sermons I listen to pretty regularly. Um, he's, I mean, he's, he's not Lutheran. But uh, he's an excellent preacher, and 
just about as close as you can be to being a conservative Lutheran without actually being a conservative Lutheran. So, yeah, he's fantastic. He's yeah, I also love the way he preaches. He just talks, gets up there and talks to his people. Yeah, yeah. So, is it appropriate? That's probably not the right way to put it because it is in scripture. <laughs> but um, I think we sometimes retch against the idea of being identified as prisoners right now in our current state. Right. Um, and I don't know if that's as Americans. I don't know if that's like triumphalism. I don't know what it is that makes us say that. But we, for some reason, seem to chafe and itch against the idea that we are currently slaves to sin. Is that an appropriate way or is it antiquated uh, to talk about our current status? Um, and if Christ has come and died and been the sacrifice that sets us free, why do we remain enslaved to sin? Do you want to respond first, Jacob, or should I? Go ahead. Uh, I would say we want to acknowledge what Christ has done for us in setting us free from sin, that in the realest sense, we have been set free from the guilt and judgment of sin. That's not a reason to take sin lightly, that's to put yourself back in the cage, so to speak. Uh, I, I would also say, Paul talks about how we are awaiting the redemption of our bodies. So there, there is a sense in which we are bound not to, but with sin, this side of heaven. And, and that we have to deal with, well, before the podcast we were talking about problems with body and looking forward to being in heaven because you get a mulligan, so to speak, and <laughs> that, that we're looking forward to the resurrection for all those kinds of reasons. And, and in that sense, yeah, you, you could say we are prisoners. The the creation is subject to futility, but it's it's... In saying that we are still prisoners to sin, that that can come across as though sin were the one holding the key, or, or sin is the one master over us. Whereas Paul says, well, no, if you've died to sin, you live to righteousness. Jesus is your master now. And yet the good I want to do, I do not do, and the wicked I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. It, it makes me think, uh, forget which day it was this week, but uh, Professor Cherney shared with us a little phrase that he likes, that uh, uh, the distinction between a believer and an unbeliever is that an unbeliever clings to his sin, whereas sin clings to a believer. I like that a lot. I think there's a, a place in everyone's life of sanctification where they first realize how much they hate their own sin and how exciting and wonderful it will be to be free of it. And I think to some extent, like everyone understands that, but it, it kind of becomes more conscious at a different point in, in your life. And that is kind of a recognition that we are still, in in some sense, slaves to sin, although we are free in Christ. Uh, in in what you said, I'm reminded. So again, before before the recording, we were 
had a little talk about the Wauwatosa theologians, and I'm reminded of reading uh, one of J.P. Kaler's essays, Die Heiligung geschieht nicht mit Hurrah, or Sanctification does not happen with Hurrah. And he's talking about how you can't charisma someone into sanctified behavior. Like, yes, you can get the outward result that you want, but that the inner change is a reality of the Holy Spirit working through the means of grace, blah, blah, blah. The quote that comes to mind from that is, that, that, that just stuck with me, is that in, in the Christian life, the experience of sanctification is not so much reaching higher and higher heights that you have constant victory after victory, but it is rather the sobering experience of realizing just how close you are to falling into the pits of hell were it not for the hand of God holding you back. And in, in that sense, again, could very much agree that we are, we are slaves who are stuck with sin. It's kind of like, if you think about why you want to go to heaven, one of the natural reasons to want to go to heaven is that you don't remain dead, right? And, and more extreme, you don't get punished for your sin. That's a fair and good reason to, to want to go to heaven. Better yet, you get freed from your sin. And, and maybe better still, you get to meet the one with the keys. You get to see your Jesus face to face. And that, I think, is fair to say will be better than not dying and better than being free from sin. But that we are alive and free from sin, we might see God face to face. And then God, to bring it back to Advent, God who's been made flesh, who's human too. What a thing. Wow. Yeah. I think... Um, I think this help this helps me, so take it or leave it. Um, but I think um, the position of the Christian who has been redeemed in waiting for the advent of our King um, is not that of um, is not that of a prisoner on death row awaiting his execution. Instead, it's a <clears throat> it's a prisoner who knows very well he has committed the crime and he is guilty, and yet he knows he has been pardoned but has not yet been set free. There is no doubt that that day is coming. That day is coming quickly, and I long for that day. I also recognize I deserve to be here in prison. And it still is a little nerve-wracking when the guard comes to the door. Yeah even if he's the guard that, that sets you free. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I think that's a perfectly fine and, and biblical image that it, it really is a, a pardon. I think what's also beautiful about this image, the, the key of David, is, I mean, we've hit it all on, on it already, but just to summarize, it, it makes grace so clear. Because you think about standing at a locked door, there is nothing you can do to get that open it, it is it is locked it is shut 
Jesus is the one who takes the key and opens the door. And did you do anything to get it open? Just the opposite. <laughs> it was closed in the first place because of you. But Jesus opened it to you out of his grace. You've never picked a lock, have you, Isaiah? I guess I have not. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to <laughs> ruin your illustration there. Well, every analogy limps. I, this is an unpickable lock. You could just say that. That, that would, of course, <laughs> ruin the flow and make yeah. it terrible sounding. Now we're suddenly in like Skyrim or something. You actually haven't picked a lock, I, I bet. Or like open a lock door. We'll have to change that. <laughs> Are oh you boy. an expert at lock picking, Jacob? That is not something I would admit on a podcast. The, the funny thing <laughs> is that uh, my friend Race actually got into lock picking. So far, I, I do not believe he has done anything nefarious, but the, the moment you brought that up, he came to mind. It's kind of like a puzzle. You can make a hobby out of it. Yeah, that's that's the way he treats it. Right. There's a fun YouTube channel called Lock Picking Lawyer. That is exactly how he got into it. Well, you you got me. <laughs> but you can't keep me locked in a room. That's right. That's right. Um, I so I want to jump down to the bottom, uh, the last verse here, or the last stanza, if you will. Um, oh, I pulled up the wrong document. Uh, the Those last, who dwell in yeah. the darkness of the shadow of death. Yeah, I I can't help but see the allusion there to John one, right? Uh, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Mm. Um, let me find a verse here. While you're looking for that, I'll, I'll just share another thing that comes to mind with this Oantiphon is that I haven't ever tracked down this historically. I've, I've only heard it like said, so this is maybe a bit of folklore history type of dealio. But uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel and, and the Oantiphons that preceded it are often associated with particularly the British monks uh, during the Middle Ages. Because you can imagine monks living on the coast of England, periodically being raided by the Vikings, having all their stuff taken away. And, and imagine them, like, you know, in Latin, chanting, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and, and ransom captive Israel. O, o come, O key of David, open wide our heavenly home, make safe the way. The the image of, of those monks hunkering down, not knowing when is death going to come, when is the Savior going to come, and just kind of wading through it all. I I might be wrong. It doesn't does it say the people walking in darkness have seen a great light in chapter John if, chapter one? I thought it did. What it does say is um the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light gives light to everybody. Isaiah nine two. Yep. People Isaiah walking nine. in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the deep darkness, or of a deep darkness, a light has dawned. But the John 1 connection still fits. Oh, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. Um, and the idea that the only thing that lights that darkness is right, of the light which comes. The end of the verse there. The it is uh, that this section is referred to in Matthew four, uh, fourteen and following, 
This was to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, way to the sea along the Jordan, galley of Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Yeah, I love it. Um, which is, I mean, obviously this is these are antiphons leading up to Christmas, right? Mm. Um, uh, but I don't. So I have always been fascinated and enjoyed that uh, illustration of light coming into a dark world. Um, Paul also utilizes it quite a bit, especially in Romans um, and a few other places. This idea of um, like l- there is darkness, and there actually it's not Romans, is it? It's uh, is it Thessalonians? Um, I don't know. I don't have time to look it up. But uh, this idea that there is darkness and there is light. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot more implicated in darkness than I think we recognize at first thought, right? Um, it's not just that, um, like, oh, light comes and we like light. Um, the implication of darkness, like, when when you're in a dark place, when you're in a dark room, or you know, the lights go out, um, and a, like a, a, the closet door closes and you can't see where you're going, right? you're in you're in danger, kind of on all sides. You've got Things you could trip over and step on. Um, you also can't find like food and water. Um, there's also the danger of enemies and so forth. Like this, the list could go on and on of of different dangers that come from walking in darkness, as opposed to walking in the light. Then all things can be seen clearly. Jacob, you had a thought. Yeah, it reminds me of a short story. Uh, one time, my grandfather was in a dark place. He was having a heart attack. Right, that's probably not a very light place to be. That's a, that's a dark situation. And so he's reciting Psalm 23 and um, talks about, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, could also be translated, even though I walk through the darkest or most gloomy valley, right? This is this metaphor, uh, this picture of darkness being terrible and not where you want to be. When you're walking through the worst time in your life, what do you say? You say Psalm 23 when you're having a heart attack. He likes to joke afterwards that he was getting mixed up, the King James and the NIV, and so he at one time apologized to God in his prayer for getting the words mixed up, <laughs> and then he realized, wait a second, I don't think Jesus cares if I mixed up the words right now. Uh, keying off of that, uh, light and dark are almost, I'm not going to say almost, they're basically universal metaphors in language that that every culture has some way it talks about light and darkness and and i'm reminded of interacting with one of our good friends ben kieda and i remember him writing this is an example of what naughty linguists call pregnant language uh but the the idea being that it's it's so there's so much meaning packed into a single term that whenever it's used metaphorically it's hard to say this is the point that's being made and not all these other points. So that in, in darkness, there's danger, there's ignorance, there's death, there's hostility, there's hopelessness, like all these associations. And then light has the opposite. There's, there's warmth, like thinking of a fire. There, there's, there's joy, there's uh, gladness, there, there's safety, that uh, there's, there's knowledge. We talk about like being enlightened or the movement in, in history, the enlightenment, that that this language is all over scripture. It's in John. You mentioned it being in Paul. The verse that came to mind for me is is from Peter 
the one who called you out of darkness and brought you into his wonderful light, uh, or that you might declare the praises of the one who brought you into his wonderful light, that, that this is all over scripture to say you were, you were in this place of darkness and now you are in this place of light. Actually brings to mind also um, one of my favorite, uh, um, my favorite conversations in regards to like the problem of evil and the idea that, you know, I, we don't need to get into the problem of evil at the moment, but um, the idea that wickedness, um, like light and like cold and like several other things, is not a thing at all. What it is is the lack of what there ought to be, right? Um, and so when we talk about darkness, we're not actually talking about a thing, like a tangible thing. What we have, the thing itself is light, and darkness is that lack of light. Right? And so those walking in darkness are lacking the one thing that they need, and it is the one thing that makes everything else work. It is the one thing that you cannot lack and survive, the one thing you cannot lack and um, be fulfilled or whatever. Word, well, you can put any verb in there, right? It's the one thing you cannot lack. And so the light coming then, um, to use the Jewish or the Hebrew, right, is makes things shalom, right? Everything then as God wills it, everything in order, right? Uh, but without that light, there is no such thing as, as shalom. There is no such thing as peace. There is no such thing as things being as they should be. And in connection with the problem of evil, if I remember correctly, that's where St. Augustine argues that uh, I think he argues for a, a negative idea of evil, that evil is an absence or a corruption. And then that one of the one of the reasons Satan hates God so much is because he can't create anything. He can only ruin what God has created or destroy it. But he, he of himself cannot create anything. There's an obvious danger, I think, in the well. Maybe, maybe it isn't obvious, but there's a. The more you think about it, it becomes obvious. An obvious danger in seeing evil and wickedness as an animated force that actively contends with God. Um, there is nothing that can contend with God legitimately. There is n there is nothing that can legitimately contend with that which is greater than what can be conceived, right? Um, and so, um, there certainly is personal evil. And there certainly are um, forces at work um, in our world which are usually beyond us seeing, or even even like even people do wicked and terrible and evil things. But wickedness and evil itself is a lack of that which is good. And so the wicked, terrible people or persons or the spirits or whatever it is are that way because they lack what, that which is good. Well, and, and when someone thinks that evil is good. That's because of all the darkness and the chaos and the blindness that it brings. All those dark motive words, right? Luther will talk about how the gospel, like having faith, having knowledge in the gospel, is a light, kind of like a even like a rational or super rational way. Meaning, when you know what God's will is, because you're Christian, then you see the world like it actually is. You see at least to a higher degree than someone who's not Christian, what truly is good, what truly is beautiful, what is lovely, right? Like um, sacrifice makes sense to you 
for the right reasons now it's not just a chasing after the wind and after the things you want it's it's oriented to god and this is orderly and light and this is good but then luther will go on and say but there's even a greater light that we're gonna get and that's when we're in heaven then we're not gonna see anything with blinders and there's going to be no sin and darkness in our vision we're going to see everything perfectly and that's the second second light that will will have the really interesting thing is the language you use to describe those things like beautiful and lovely are visual and they require light to be seen right which is just Bingo. just so many so many levels and layers to it or fantastic uh, going back to the idea of uh, the the danger of emphasizing evil as its own force too much, it, it kind of makes me think of those kind of cringy uh, boomer memes that you'll see like on Facebook where it's like God and, and or Jesus and Satan arm wrestling and it's like, like for Jesus, ignore for devil or something like that. And I- implicit like in the image and the idea is somehow that could that satan could somehow win but when you look in scripture whether it's right now where we're going through uh, isaiah and there's some kind of apocalyptic imagery there of of god coming to save his people at the end of the world or, or you think especially about like revelation any of those narratives or, or not narratives and any of those pictures those visions in scripture God always wins very anticlimactically. Like you have the big battle set up and then God wins. Just snap, it's over. Like there, it was not a battle. It was judgment. God pronounced his verdict and now it's over. I'm kind of a side rant. I'm glad you brought that up because sometimes I think American Christians, and I'm of course guilty of this at times too, think that they're not susceptible to like false religion they're they're susceptible to you know like things they know are wrong or like secular things but not to like other religions i would never i would never do a thing that someone does in another religion but to to believe that there's this like big force of evil and this big force of good and these struggle and it plays out over the earth and sometimes evil wins and sometimes god wins but god's gonna win in the end like that's like taoism like like the yin, yin yang symbol right with the with the dark and the chaos on one side and the order on the other and these are the two like opposing forces or like like this is not the reality this is not christianity it is a little bit like star wars which you know i can see why an american would think that this is why reality is or why reality is like star wars cuz it fills their minds it's a cultural thing I don't know. Rant over. Well, but even even like karma and some of those ideas, the, yeah. the idea of karma is that you, you, you all you're doing is depersonalizing Taoism, right? So you have <clears throat> have these forces in the universe that that even each other out, and so the uh, if, if what goes around comes around, then you have these balancing forces in nature that will bring things back to an equilibrium, and so there really is no such thing as evil. In such a situation, because what is evil is necessary and therefore is good, and so people that uh, will dwell in this world where they have world in quotation marks, where they have you know, the yin yang or the karma uh, or whatever that those those are the governing principles of the world that they choose to live in. Um, they cannot also they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. 
if they then complain that something is wrong or something is not good. There is no moral right and wrong or good and evil if they balance each other out because they both are equally good. That's where it's a very appealing idea in history, whether it's Buddhism or Stoicism or various movements, that you overcome evil and suffering by accepting them. That it's simply a matter of... And there is something to that, in that the 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 very down to earth application of complaining never helps anything. That that if you have a problem, just complaining about it doesn't do anything, and in fact may make you more miserable. Like there there's plenty there that say even Christians will lean on Stoics for wisdom, but but there is something lost in 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 the thought then that that then evil is just something you have to put up with and you you will find your way with it and it's it's just going to work out and, and that <laughs> that that then can become such a license for all kinds of evil or or even really it, it can deprive people of hope because then there's a sense that well this crummy world is what we're stuck with and that's where what we have as christians is so beautiful that God promises freedom from this, that that it that this innate sense that something is wrong, that voice is actually correct, that we were made for something much more beautiful, wonderful, and fulfilling than this experience of life that we have. It's kind of like when parents just accept that their teenage kids are going to be bad for a while. Like, oh yeah, you gotta be young and let the evil run its course and make your mistakes, and then you grow up. Like, you just allow this evil. And they'll do this maybe, I think, in part because they want to absolve the bad things that they did when they were a teen. It's even more egregiously, like when a parent says, well, you can't, you can't stop your child from having sex during high school or college. When, when a parent says that, what they're actually saying is, I had sex out of wedlock in high school and no one can be more righteous than me. Yelza. <laughs> but you're right. You're right. I yeah. can't hear through the mic, through my headphones. No? We can hear you. I got I it. Can. I just unplugged. Sorry. <laughs> he unplugged himself. Yeah. I was so worked up that I put my, I put my foot down and... and <laughs> put your foot down. Lost Un- my ears. Unlike the parents. Yeah, you unlike, unlike those parents, those self-righteous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but but that's exactly it, right? Is um we we live in a world that does not even want to recognize that they have been enslaved, that they are living in darkness. Um that they need a key of David. Yeah. And how wonder what a wonderful blessing that the one who holds the key to everlasting life is also the one who already like <clears throat> it might seem like a burden to ask him to open the door, but look what he's already done. You know? He became flesh. Like the one here's here's one of my favorite ways to talk about this is you think about like what the what the price is, right? What's the ransom for me? Like the ransom for a dog is you know, a couple hundred bucks, so you pay a fee to the government, you get your dog back, whatever it is, right? Uh what what kind of a like if from the from the pound or whatever, right? From the human society. Uh if you're if if a kid gets kidnapped, 
the price is usually a couple million dollars, right? That's the price for a child. This makes me think there was a time uh, Julius Caesar was abducted by pirates and he scolded them for making his ransom price too low because he considered <laughs> it an insult. That's fantastic, right? So here's the question. is What is the ransom which was paid for you? Silence is the right answer because it cannot be expressed, right? It's the one, like, the the there is nothing in the created world which could redeem you. And so that which is beyond the created world, God himself gave himself for me. And I, no greater price possibly could be paid than the price that was paid for me. I like that like God kind of accomplished this in two ways. One, he, he paid an infinite price by God's sacrifice. And then two, he also like related that sacrifice to me in like an ultimate way by becoming human and by human blood being shed. It, it's like it's like if, if you've got a fine um, in another country and not only did the government like send over a bunch of dollars to pay your pay your fine in in Brazil but they were like no we're going to we're going to fly down we're going to become citizens we're going to earn all this money in brazilian currency pesos i don't know i don't know and then and then pay your fine like just the extent of like all that work to 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 completely to buy you back is just that uh, that gives me a lutheran thought and a church father thought Aren't those the same? <laughs> yes, uh, but but in terms of sourcing them, uh, the the Lutheran thought comes from a hymn. Uh, I'm not I'm not going to remember it exactly. I just know the the German, and this isn't going to be quite right either because it it came up in class today, and when Dean Otto put it on the board, I was like, ah, I have it memorized wrong. And then in this moment, I'm like, ah, I still have it memorized wrong. <laughs> but it's it's something like. Wie gross I note Gott selbst ist tot. The wie gross I note part is wrong, but the the in English that would be what great dread God Himself is dead. Uh, that this is in in one of our Good Friday hymns. The old hymnal had God's Son is dead, and for theological reasons in the new hymnal they decided to go more literal in the translation. Uh, I don't remember what it is now in the blue hymnal, but the the idea that. God himself, who is unkillable, immortal, God had to die on a cross to save you. It's it's not only something so ridiculous in terms of the the grace of God, but also the, the, the price that was paid and the seeming impossibility of it. Scandal. The, yes, exactly. Uh, the... The church father thought is that one of the things the church fathers will commonly say about the life of Christ is that by taking on our flesh, he sanctified fill in the blank human experience. So, so Christ, Christ sanctified getting up in the morning because he did it. Christ sanctified being frustrated with sinful human beings because he did it. Christ sanctified fill in the blank for an everyday human experience. Now, granted, you can't put a sin into that blank, but the point is that it's it's a counter to the kind of incipient, the, the, the pervasive shame that so many people feel. 
that the, 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 the cure is that Jesus lived this life too. And so it's, it's not an evil thing for me to live it. Even if I'm living and sin is stuck to me, it, it is still Christ means God approves of me. And therefore, I don't need to feel shame in my day-to-day life. Awesome. I love it. We're going to move on because uh, we don't want to run out of time. So here we go. It seems wise. We're going to jump into uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Uh, for context, this comes just after Isaiah's prophecy to Hezekiah, to King Hezekiah, that his whole household will be carried away. Um, and so what? Just keep going. Oh, Okay. Um, so, oh boy, now I'm nervous. <laughs> anyway, no need, no need. Um, so he just, yeah, so he just, uh, announced to King Hezekiah that, um, his whole household will be carried away. And essentially King Hezekiah is, um, comforted, even though he finds out his whole house is going to be carried away because he assumes that it's going to happen after he dies. Um, and so then after announcing that the King's household, so really the whole nation is going to be carried off into exile, this is what Isaiah says next. Of course, by inspiration. Comfort, comfort, my people, says our God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert highway. In, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry! And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of life... Hmm... The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, and say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The first time I ever read the word of God publicly, it was this section as a part, I mean, like apart from like, you know, like a children's Christmas service. It was, it was sometime like early high school. And I still remember tripping over all flesh shall see it. Just just came to mind, memory. <laughs> all flesh shall see it. I'll try saying that one five times yeah. fast. It is quite the juxtaposition, right? 39 into 40. There's lots you could say about that. One of the... And, and there's no transition whatsoever. Right, and so one of the thoughts is that this is later. Um, still Isaiah, still the same inspired author, but now he's talking about a different thing. This is a different uh, set of sermons or poetry, however you're going to talk about it, writing about when exile is over and when Israel when Israel comes back. And so this this 
comfort comes, as verse 2 says, um, after your warfare uh, is ended, after you've received double your your uh, your <laughs> your punishment. In other words, Israel, your, your time out is over. Come give me a hug. Now, we get this weird thing in verse 3. A voice. We don't know who the voice is. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Now, we know that later, like John the Baptist does that, but who is speaking in Isaiah? And then another guy is like, what, what do I, another voice says, cry, and then, then, then Isaiah, I said, what do I cry? It's kind of like, what's, go, what's going on here? One of the theories, now this is, this is, we're in the realm of theory now, so I want to I put that caveat out we, there. We smiled as you started like suggesting context, because we had like weeks on this section in Isaiah class, and, and there is a whole ongoing debate. And, and to briefly, I, I think this is worth the, the listener, just to, just, we're not going to be able to exhaustively say it here. There are people who are critical of the scriptures who say that Isaiah 40 through 66 is a different book from 1 through 39, that they would say this was written like hundreds of years after the fact and somebody else stitched it on and said it's all one book. I'm oversimplifying. We just had a whole class where Professor Cherney said, don't oversimplify and call those people dumb. I'm not about to do that, <laughs> but I am about to say they're wrong. That this is still the word of God. We can we can trust that this came from the prophet Isaiah. And so if, if a listener out there has encountered that, please talk to your pastor and he will be able to help explain it to you. Uh, that there there is a disjunct between 1 through 39 and 40 through 66, but we would see a, a different explanation for that. I interrupted. That's okay. So one of the theories is that what we have here, in, starting in verse 3, is what some scholars call a divine council scene. It's those special and like unique times in the Bible when we get to like peer back behind the veil and hear like God talking to himself or like in the Trinity or with the angels or his ministering spirits. So very briefly in the beginning of Genesis, let us create man in our image is a little peek at God talking. Then you've got Job chapter one. It's probably the most famous one where God's like in his throne room and then Satan comes and, and God's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> right? And, and um, they have their little wager where he says, go, go, go tempt Job and, and look and see how he won't, he won't bow to you, Satan. He's still going to be my servant. And th this is the, the little scene with this little almost vision-like description of God in his, his throne room. And so the thought is that maybe this, this scene, starting in verse 3, is a picture of God and the, the angels talking about what they're going to do to bring about salvation and comfort to Israel. And to uh, to add what ja to to add to what Jacob said, uh, that we also have a divine council scene in Isaiah. That's Isaiah six, where we have this call issue to Isaiah. The, the, the familiar coal. words, yes, the, the, the coal, this has touched your lips, your, your, your sin is covered, your guilt is taken away, uh, then, then 
God calls out, you know, who who shall I send and who shall speak for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me, send me. Uh, and, and then that launches Isaiah's ministry. Hineni. Exactly. Hineni. Uh, <laughs> and and this is also uh, Ezekiel one, where see where he sees his vision by the Kibar River. Uh, the theory would go, and again there are there are biblical scholars who would take it who believe Isaiah's the Bible, and there are ones who don't. So this isn't this isn't an issue of whether or not it's the Word of God. Uh, the the thought would be that. This is to mark the next section of the book. So we we had a main message in Isaiah 1 through 39 that God is going to bring judgment. Then in 40 through 66, the message is God is going to bring salvation and restoration. And so the idea is, well, if Isaiah was commissioned for the one message, maybe, maybe he's commissioned for the other message. Not everyone thinks this, uh, more more traditional opinions tend to be that this is maybe one of Isaiah's sermons, maybe in response to the context, but... He's uh, exhorting anyone who is kind of a prophet or someone who would talk about the Word of God. Here's God's message. Comfort, Messiah's going to come, let's just talk about it. It's totally appropriate and fine to, if, you, if you view the text that way as well. Right, and the the name of the scholar who who proposed that is uh, Cross. I think that's Frank Moore Cross. Sounds right. Gonna assume Frank Moore Cross, and if I'm if I'm wrong, forgive me, Professor Cherney. Uh, but he he proposes that in an essay that this is a divine council scene. There are some issues with that theory. Divine council scenes are are in every other place in Scripture, very explicit that it's a narrative that we have God identified. If the angels are there, they are identified. If there's a prophet there, he's identified. And that it's, the dialogue is all very clear. Here, it's it's not all spelled out. Now, if you, in your imagination, insert a, and the Lord said, and the prophet Isaiah said, like it, it works, it fits very well. Uh, regardless, the the application of the verses still stands, uh, regardless of the history, which looking, looking at these verses, it, it's God wants comfort to be delivered to his people. So Jacob mentioned in verse two, she has received double from the Lord's hand. This can also be taken as not double punishment, but double grace. So if you imagine on a bar graph that Israel's sins would deserve this much punishment points, let's say, that God is saying, I'm going to give you that amount, but double, but it's grace. And that's kind of almost an idea like our our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that is worth beyond compare. But that's comparing suffering to glory. This would be comparing sin to grace. So not only am I going to pay your debt in full, I'm going to pay your debt in full and then double it. Right. So it's so clear. We're, we're, you're fine. Like the, the, the message either way, whether it is payback or grace, it's, it's saying the debt is done. It's wiped out. I'm not angry anymore. I'm on your side. I'm here with you. This, this is going to be the time of salvation. And, and then we see, you know, these verses John the Baptist uses as he's pointing to Christ. 
and, and we see, you know, verse five, the, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. You, you can take that as both the coming of Christ. Again, this is a very Advent idea, both the coming of Christ in his first coming on earth, but also the coming of Christ in glory when he comes to judge the living and the dead to, to bring his people home. In that day, it will be certainly clear that all people see God's glory. It will also be clear that all flesh is like grass, but God and his word stand forever. Now, it seems a little odd almost that such a phrase would be placed right in the middle of this. What What's the idea of placing all that, like that, that phrase, uh, grass withers, flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely people are grass. Um, for, for, why place that right in the middle of this prophecy? For, for my part, it's kind of like a callback to all the promises you're supposed to remember. So us Israelites have had people who have died, and in our recent history we've been taken away, and then they've had kind of a tough life, and then now their life's over, and now we're a remnant, and this stinks. And someday my miserable Israelite life is going to be over too now that I'm in the remnant. But what doesn't die ever is God's promise to send Messiah. King Messiah is going to come and King Messiah is going to make everything all right. I would say uh, thinking of all the times in scripture that God's people look for salvation in all the wrong places. Uh, we especially see this in the New Testament, all the times that the Jews want an earthly king, a, a Messiah who's going to get rid of the Romans, that even after the resurrection, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are we going to get in the tank and march on Rome? Uh, no. <laughs> this is not going to happen through human arms through human might, that that clearly in in the context of Isaiah, but also all of Scripture and, and, and even own our own human experience, human beings cannot save because one day you are going to die. And everything that you have built, everything you have accomplished is going to wither and fade. But God's promise as Jacob put it, that King Messiah will save, that promise stands. And that's why you commonly see, uh, and I should say commonly, if you look at like historical Lutheran things, you'll often see the symbol VDMA with a cross in it. That's referring to this verse. So, ah, yes, you, you have it up there. And the Latin Verbum Domini manet in aeternum, the word of the Lord stands into eternity. That's from this verse that whatever happens, God's word is true. God's word will be fulfilled. So when the the armies of Emperor Charles V are marching on the Lutherans, they all put that on their armor to say, okay, you might kill us and win, which they did. You can't take the word of God from us. And the fact that we're here today, gathered in this wonderful fellowship, sipping a nice beverage and talking about these words is proof of that 500 years later. How's that for some battle courage, huh? I want to be like that. <laughs> we all do. I want to be like that. And 
say, the word of the Lord stands in eternity. And that word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Yes. Right. Um, and that adds another dimension to um, uh, the great mystery, right? Is not just is Jesus a savior, not just is Jesus God made man, but Jesus is everything that he was promised that that we were promised he would be. Um, he is every word that was spoken of him. Um, and so like he's just beyond that which can be comprehended even in even in the incarnation. Who else is everything they said they would be? Not I. <laughs> Not I. And then to touch on the 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 ending verses, then verse nine we there's a call to get this message out there. So uh, I am personally persuaded by the argument that this is a divine council scene. So the thought would be that God is saying comfort, comfort, and and the point is it just needs to happen. Someone needs to do it, and Isaiah receives the message, and the message is all. Human hopes fail, but God's word, God's word stands forever. Well, go say it. And then verse nine, it's bringing this to to Zion, to Jerusalem, to the cities of Judah, saying God is coming. He's bringing salvation. Here he is. And you can imagine John the Baptist growing up, like reading these verses, and then someday getting to point to his cousin and say, "Look, he came." And all those words we read and learned in synagogue, and maybe they had their memory work too, that's him. And he's right there. And then, again, then we have the picture of, of uh, uh, he, he comes with might, his arm, that, that this is a mighty God who can defeat enemies. His reward is with him, his recompense before him, that, that he... He's going to take care of you. He, he's going to bind the strong man. And he's plundering the Egyptians. He's taking all of the good things, which includes you and your soul. And then, uh, verse 11, Jesus as a shepherd, that he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and, and gently lead the young. That, that this is the image of, uh, again, thinking that the prophet Isaiah is given this message. His immediate context, he lives through Assyria nearly destroying Judah. And they deported the northern kingdom such that it doesn't exist anymore. And so even in his own time, these words have meaning. But then how much more for the exiles who go to Babylon? And, and how much more for us awaiting the return of Christ? That he will come and carry us home in his arms to that place where death is at an end, where there is no darkness, where there is only light and love and goodness. That's beautiful. Now, in the verses before, the, like right at the beginning, right, uh, it talks about preparing a royal highway. And we've had people make much of that idea, right, of what does, what does it look like to prepare a, a royal highway for for, for my God. What do you have to say to that? So this does appear in another section. We just went through it in class, but I can't remember where it is. But somewhere in the 60s in, in Isaiah, uh, like it's almost word for word, build the highway. But then it adds to it. And it it's literally the phrase in Hebrew is stone the highway. 
but it's kind of like how if if you say um uh what would be an example uh, uh weed the garden you don't mean put weeds in the garden you mean pull the weeds out of the garden mm-hmm. so the idea is not to 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 throw the stones like to kill something but to move them or even to to rearrange them to build up the highway so that what what was once you know bumpy ground is now level and the point is like it's it's our our metaphor would be something like or idiom would be like roll out the red carpet someone important is coming he should have an easy entrance and and that's what advent is all about christ should have an easy entrance to your heart not in some decision theology come to the altar call way but recognizing as christians we sing in, in that beautiful Lutheran hymn, Jesus Priceless Treasure, you have the line, Jesus is my choice. That's referring to the Christian life, that, that we can now, cooperating with the Holy Spirit, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and availing ourselves of the means of grace, taking in the word of God, we can be ready for Jesus coming back. In practical terms... What does rolling out the red carpet for Jesus look like? Gas up the truck is always what I what I imagine. <laughs> like like a, a redneck guy. Unpack that. Going like, gas up the truck. He's come. We gotta we gotta get ready. He's he's coming. And so, well, what what what's the fuel, huh? Um, it, it, for my part, that would be Psalms, reading reading the Psalms in the morning try and think God's thoughts, God's prayers. And so with those, I get rid of my thoughts and I import his thoughts. It's the passage, whatever is pure, whatever is right, whatever is holy, if anything is admirable at all, think those things. That's the gas for the truck. Thank you, Jonathan Fisk. Um, Although <laughs> I, 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 can't, I can't cast stones because I... My, I my other analogy was like a wormhole analogy for Star Trek, but I thought I'd leave that one. For time. <laughs> all right, all right. If you're stuck in the Delta Quadrant and you're 70 million light years away, or 70,000 light years from, away from Earth, you can't get home even at warp 10 in but 70 years. But, but if you've got a wormhole, like in the episode Bliss and that came out in 2001, Star Trek Voyager. I'm a Star Wars guy, not a Star Trek guy, so then, I'm sort of getting it, but not really. I'm you, not a nerd, so... Then you can get home, like, really quickly, unless the wormhole is actually just, an, like, it's space amoeba alien. <laughs> then you're unless just sunk. Space amoeba. Then you better just gas up the ship and get going home. To give my answer after that beautiful <laughs> I love illustration, I love it. Um, <laughs> I, I would say, Advent is a time to stop and reflect. Uh, it's it's so countercultural. I think I said as much, you know, in in the last episode, that that I really encourage you to to take in the the midweek Advent, but it, it's also to to do this that we would actually stop and reflect. I, I think so much of the trouble for us today is because we never actually process our emotions. 
you think about like someone living in like the 1800s where if you're going to go somewhere you're going to walk there and the time that gives you to just think and they don't have radio they don't have podcasts they don't have spotify it's just you and your thoughts and i think it's good for us to do that not just in some kind of mindfulness way though that can be helpful too but to do that as christians which is to take the mirror of God's law and walk through your life and to ask, where, where have I failed in my vocations? Where do I want God to give me strength? What am I hoping for? Am I excited for heaven? And what am I looking forward to? And really start to ponder what it will be like to live without sin. And that might just change your life. And give you motivation to get out of bed in the morning. It'll gas up the truck. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're blessed right that it will. Because uh, it feels wrong to say you're darn right in this context. Um, <laughs> darn right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, oh, now, now I have to try and get back on track. It's because you drove a truck into this. Uh, it's an off-road. Was that for a mixed metaphor? Um, (laughs) Yes, uh, uh, where I was going was thinking about uh, uh, what we typically think about as communion preparation, which is not so much to say, like, you don't receive the, like, Jesus hates you. If you don't do this, it's more so you will be more blessed to see how much you are forgiven and and to take the gospel to heart. And for us now, again, in, in this Advent season of looking forward to Christ returning, that it's unpack the real gift. And the real gift is Jesus. Stop thinking uh, about what's going to be under the tree, whether for you that's a, a vacation or a literal present, literal presence you're looking forward to, or the the time with family or the meals or what whatever it is, and you can put the worries there too. Stop and unwrap the real gift, which is Jesus, and see how much more this gift shines compared to all those other ones, that those fade like the grass too, but this word of the Lord stands forever. And and just, I, I struggle for language because it's, it's, it's a hard some. thing to put into <laughs> words. But I, I would just say again before Jacob jumps in, take it in, spend the quiet time with God. Actually talk to God. Tell him how your day is going. Tell him what you want to see. Tell him what you're looking forward to in heaven. Tell him about the people you miss and can't wait to see. And see what that does to your soul. I'm going to try and capture this thought real fast. Lots of cultural movies and and stories, we find them motivating. We want to get up and do things because of how awesome the story was and how amazing the hero was. Well, in Advent, we can reflect... And gas up the truck for next year by thinking about the coolest myth, story, adventure ever. The one that actually happened. The one where God came, became a person. I want to jump down to the last line here. 
All right. He will tend his, this is verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and will gently lead those that are with young. Mm. Now, I'm a physical touch guy. Right, I there is nothing that speaks to me quite the way physical touch does, um, and so um, like I I do a lot of <laughs> it's gonna come out weird, but I do a lot of touching, so a lot of arms around shoulders, a, group hug a lot of <laughs> a lot of arms around shoulders, a lot of um, you know like when I'm talking to somebody, I'll you know like put my hand on their shoulder or on their arm or something like that, or um, I'll put put my arm around a guy's from sitting next to in chapel, things like that, right? Um, but there is there. Um, especially I like, got a rough day, uh, especially if something's really challenging or especially if, um, it's a an intimate moment of any kind, whether it's just like friendship or whatever it might be, <clears throat> there is there or going home, right. Going home to see my folks. Nothing quite speaks to my heart the way physical touch does like a, a big warm hug. And, <clears throat> I genuinely long for physical contact with other people, right? And so I love, love the idea of my being, Savior just scooping me up in his arms. Being carried. And literally being swaddled like a baby. Um, not generally, but by my Savior, absolutely, right? Um, and then even the idea of um, he, he leads us not as like some mighty conquering king, which certainly he does and he could. What's used here, um, in 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 the place of comfort, is um, what's used here in a place of comfort is leading them like sheep, right? Leading them not just like sheep, but like ewes which have young, and that gentle prodding, that patient, gentle, quiet prodding. Um, I, I like to think. <laughs> um, I like to think sometimes. Um, in the more human side of things, um, a kindergartner, like on the first day of school, she said a rough day, things are, things did not go well at school. She wasn't naughty, but things just didn't go well. She misses mom and dad so forth. And, uh, dad shows up in his SUV, right. And goes mm-hmm. down to the classroom and she sees him and everything's just okay again. And she crawls up into his arms, and he carries her out to the truck, and everything's just okay. That's what my Savior is to me. She has no needs in that moment. No needs whatsoever. Yeah. Makes me think about my my mom's favorite story was John 20, when Mary Magdalene is the first witness to the resurrection. And how in that moment, he he says to her, Mary. And she turns around, clings to his feet. And Mom talked about how she wanted to cling to Jesus like that. And I'm reminded in, in her funeral sermon, uh, Pastor Eckerd describing how uh, that morning when we lost her, uh, Jesus called Cheryl. And she saw him. And I'm reminded of beautiful thought from CFW Walther that what a what a joy it will be that the hands that were pierced with nails because of my sin will one day hold a crown and put it on my head 
instead of a crown of thorns, a crown of gold, and say to me, Well done, good and faithful servant. And I can tell you, in that moment, I am going to cry, and I don't know if I'm going to cling to Jesus' feet or go into the bear hug, but I know that will be a physical touch moment as I think about that. And the, the, I, I can't, I can't imagine dying and not recognizing Jesus. There's this intuitive sense that you get there and you just know who he is, right? And, and the thought then of, of, you know, whatever the disembodied experience of the soul is, but then for sure on the last day to, to have those hands wipe away every tear. And to hear that voice, which I have followed all my life, but it's actually his physical human voice in my ears. Uh, it is such, such a beautiful thought. It's the kind of thing that keeps you going when you've lost anything else to hope in or look forward to. You're talking about a scandal, right? Hmm. Talk about a ragamuffin gospel of '90s fame, right? Um, this idea that this idea that not only that I should be declared righteous, but that I should stand before the throne of God in my tattered clothes, my wretched state, dirty like pig pen from the peanuts, stand before the throne of God, and not only does He declare me innocent, declare me just but throws a robe of righteousness on my shoulders, takes the crown off his own head, and places it on mine. Now that's a scandal. And what a beautiful scandal it is. Amen. Like a, like a scandal might be in the news. It's kind of captivating, too. Can't take my eyes off it. Not because it's terrible, because it's the most beautiful. It... Another thought that I've had in thinking about Christ's return that has ever since stuck with me is one of the pictures is Christ as the groom and the church as the bride. And we, we all think about how much we are looking forward to see Jesus. The thought that he's looking forward to see you too. That like, again, single men in here, we don't know this experience. <laughs> but the thinking about the married men I do know. And either having been there in their wedding or hearing about it after the fact. The, the, the man standing, waiting for his bride to come. And he turns around and almost every time he, he's in tears, he's shocked, he's overcome with joy. He's been waiting for this moment so long. She's so beautiful. The, 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 she is so much more than anything he could have hoped for. And that that is the way Jesus thinks about you. The way he thinks about me. And that for 2,000 years, he has been waiting to turn around. If you think it's hard waiting for Jesus, think about Jesus waiting for you. And how happy he will be to finally embrace you as his own, freed from every stain of sin, 
finally he gets the happy ending he always wanted. Too beautiful for words. Well, I don't want this to end, but it has to. <laughs> um, yeah, what uh, what a comfort, what a joy. Um, if you are enjoying us, obviously make sure you're sharing it with other people. Um, if you're still here, we applaud you, we thank you. Um, but man, what a what a I, I just keep saying it because I I can't stop. What a joy that I get to do this and sit down with you guys and have these conversations. Um, that's all all because we have listeners like you guys. Um, that are willing to sit here and listen to us as well. So uh, we'll make sure we put links down in the show notes below. Uh, make sure you're sharing this with other people. If you are looking for an Advent resource, of course, there's this podcast, but then there's also old episodes of Letters from Father Christmas as well. Um, and, of course, our gift guide online. Like I said, all those links in the show notes below. Jacob and Isaiah, thank you for being on the show once again. They're going to join us again next week for our third round before we get to Christmas. Um, gentlemen, go be the minute God created you to be. We will talk to you next week. On behalf of all those involved in producing, recording, editing, and distributing this episode, Thank you for listening to the Gird Up Podcast. If you'd like to contact us with comments, questions, or suggestions, you can reach out to us at any of the links in the description below or on our website. Please consider supporting the work of Gird Up Ministries by donating on Patreon, shopping at our online store, or making a $5 cup of coffee donation at www.girdupministries.com. Those donations help us make more great content just like this for young men just like you. Make sure you like, friend, follow, and subscribe to Gird Up and all of our guests on your social media platforms, and consider leaving a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the Gird Up podcast so that others can find us and be blessed by our content, too. As always, thanks for listening. Now go and be the man that God created you to be. We'll see you next time.